Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we know the inverse is true. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Where's your treasure this morning? As we open up God's word together to Proverbs chapter 2, and we begin to consider uh, this idea of treasure and how are we participating in that and what is our priority when it comes to uh, our treasure. As I begin this morning, I want to start with a story, actually a, a true story, an account, something that happened that probably we all wish would happen to us. Um, and, and you'll see what I mean as I get into it. Some folks are in a constant mission to unearth buried treasure, while others are fortunate enough to stumble upon it unexpectedly. Back in 2013, an unsuspecting California-based couple took their dog for a walk and noticed a rusted can partially buried in the ground. I'm just going to try to get our technology going again. Here we go. They were shocked to find that the metal container was filled with $20 gold coins. Upon further investigation, the couple found several more coin-filled cans buried nearby on their property. The coins were minted from 1847 to 1894, and much to the couple's surprise, there were nearly $1,420 pieces in total. Additionally, they discovered 50 $10 coins and four $5 pieces. Now, if, if the worth of that at face value would have been impressive, right, by itself. But the going rate for a single coin, one of the coins, which happened to be a double eagle undated coin, was worth by itself an estimated $1 million. The total value of their find was greater than $10 million. Just out walking their dog, finding this treasure. You know, when we find something valuable that we enjoy, we experience it, and we want to keep that experience going, which is why they kept digging when they found that can, just like you or I would have, right? Could there be buried treasure in your backyard? Now everybody's going to go home and start digging up their yards. But what if someone told you there was, and they told you that they were very certain? You would at least get a metal detector and, and see if you could get anything to show up on there. You might even do some digging in various spots to try to find that treasure. But what if there has been a buried treasure right in front of our eyes this entire time, but we didn't realize it. And I'm not talking about 1800s gold coins. I'm talking about that book that you're holding right in your hands or on your screen this morning. What if the real treasure of this world isn't treasure? What if the real treasure of this world is wisdom from God? And we've been underestimating its value. Could we be underestimating the value of wisdom? How do you go about making your decisions in life? All of us face very tough decisions where we can't go to actually a chapter and verse even in the Bible because the Bible doesn't address that issue directly. 
And so we come into life and we come into different seasons of life and we're faced with what seems like impossible decisions, choices that have to be made. And how do we do that? An anonymous author said this, good decisions come from experience and experience comes from bad decisions. And there is some truth to that, isn't there? Because we learn through our mistakes, or at least that's what we're supposed to do. But what if we didn't have to? What if we could gain wisdom that helped us avoid bad decisions? I think that's what God wants for us. I think that's why he's left us the treasure of his word. And so we're going to explore that as we explore Proverbs chapter 2. This proverb, and really the Proverbs in general, they're designed to help us gain wisdom that we need in our daily lives at the street level, how we interact with others, how we interact with money, how we interact with our jobs and family and relationships. So much wisdom is found in the word of God and especially in the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs 2, 1 through 6, that's our passage this morning, it provides us with six conditions, six conditions that must be met if we are to gain the wisdom that it takes to make wise choices. It gives us six conditions and then the life-changing consequence. And so that's how we've divided up the text. It's only to verse six though, not verse eight. So let's look at this together. And before we do that though, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom of Proverbs. Thank you for the treasure that it holds, Lord. Priceless treasure of your word. And you've given it to us freely. We don't really even deserve it, and we certainly could never afford it, yet you've, you've handed it to us graciously and lovingly, and we just thank you for that. We ask, Lord, that as we pursue wisdom in making our decisions, Lord, that we would always turn to you. Please, Lord, open our eyes to your word today. May your Holy Spirit speak. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, let's look at the conditions. And the first few here are kind of in couplets, if you will, where he uses similar words. They're not the same word, but similar words to emphasize the point that he's trying to make. So the first one, and there is an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, but there, the first one here is receive my words, my, receive my words. And so if you're following along in your Bibles there, Proverbs 2, verse 1, my son or my daughter, the person reading this, if you receive my words, that's our first step on our path to finding the treasure of wisdom. To, re- to receive something means to take it in hand, to carry along, but it's, it's deeper than that here. The, the meaning is really a, a purposeful receiving. It's to receive something for a reason, for a purpose. Uh, in Genesis 2.21, it says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took, he received for a purpose, he took for a purpose, one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And what did he do with that rib? He created the first woman, Eve. He took it, he received it out of Adam's side for a purpose. And so as we look at the text here, to receive the words indicates a purposeful action. There's a reason we're receiving God's word. 
It's not just randomly grabbing or a passive reception. In other words, it's to take God's words and put them into use. these, These words are the utterances, the statements, the sayings, the truth that we find in Scripture. When we say God is love, that is a truth that we're to receive not just passively, but intentionally with a purpose. What difference does it make in your life that God is love? For example, it should make a difference. There must be an association then between God's words and our lives. There must be a connection there. So to receive God's words is to grasp his word for a purpose, to grasp it for a purpose. Secondly, treasure my commands. He goes on in the verse, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commands within you, treasure my commands. This, this is the idea of storing up, of hiding, of protecting, of taking in to meditate, to memorize. It's also used in the Bible for protective concealment. When Moses' mother bore him, it says the woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a beautiful child, which every mother would say this about their child, no matter what, she hid him three months. This is the same exact word. She treasured him. The spies in Jericho were hidden by Rahab. They were treasured. They were kept safe. They were in protection. To treasure God's commands, to take his authoritative direction, because that's really what commands are. They're directions for life. And to take them into our lives, to follow them because they are God's authority. They're God's word. And and we treasure them and we bring them into our lives and we begin to, to strive to live them out. These are authoritative directions. They're instructions through speech or writing, and we have the writing before us. So when he says, love the Lord your God, the greatest commandment, we're to treasure that. We're to receive it with a purpose and also treasure it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Jesus said, as I have loved you, love one another. These are the commands as examples. There's many more. But do we treasure them? Treasure my commands, he says. It's also the idea of obedience connected here. Over in in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote about the armor of God. He said, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now we know that Christ's righteousness positionally is ours the moment we trust in him and put our faith in him for salvation. We are positionally righteous, but this is something more. This is something we're commanded to do after we believe. And so to put on the breastplate of righteousness is not a positional command. It's the call to the Christian soldier to live righteously and in obedience to what? God's commands. Because when we live in obedience, we're putting on the breastplate. When we're putting on the breastplate, we are protected. And so as we treasure the commands and internalize them and then live them out externally, We're living in obedience, and that is the process of putting on that breastplate. When I am obedient, I am not vulnerable to Satan's attacks. Obedience, that's what he's looking for. That doesn't mean the obedient life will be problem-free. Remember, Jesus was perfectly obedient. The Bible says he was obedient unto death, even the death of a what? A cross. 
So it seems that obedience might cost me something, but I will be safe from the enemy's attacks. And these words and commands are really the truths of Scripture. And I want to say that as we go through this, these verses, they grow in intensity. They, they seem to grow in intensity of the action of the son that Solomon is writing to here, and so should be with us. These words and commands, I think, are the truths of Scripture that are most easily understood. They're right at the ground level, low-hanging fruit, if you will, of God's word. The precious treasures, the truths, the basic instructions that he has given us. But should we stop with these? Apparently not, because the, the proverb doesn't end at verse 1. The, sec, the third, I should say, the third condition that must be met in order to find wisdom is to be attentive to it. Be attentive. Look at verse number two. So that you incline your ear to wisdom. Incline your ear. This, this word is to be alert, to pay attention, to listen up, to take notice of. We've already received, we've treasured, but now we need to go back for more. Now, now we know what to look for. We know the the feel of God's word. We've been listening to it. We've been receiving it. We've been treasuring it. And now we understand better what it sounds like, what it tastes like, what it feels like. And we're beginning to develop a sense of what God is saying in his word. We're beginning to see patterns of truth in scripture. We're making connections between the scriptures, allowing the the scripture to interpret itself. And we're developing and we're growing in our knowledge and in our wisdom. We need to and at this step, begin to remove the distractions that are keeping us from the word. It's, it's about our priorities at this time. When that couple was unearthing those coins, do you think they were worried about their schedule that day? I think everything, nothing else mattered, right? They had found something worth way more than anything else that they were doing. And I think God is challenging us. In fact, I know he is. Is my word that level priority? in your life? Are we focusing on it? Are we prioritizing it? As we struggle to understand life, as we struggle and we're hurt and we're wounded by others, we're suffering. It's the word that sustains us. It's the word that gives us hope. We, we sometimes say, well, the Bible is part of the Christian life, but really the Bible is the Christian life. It is the most central theme Uh, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. God loves to give his wisdom. We must come to him with the right heart. And I think Proverbs 2 gives us the way to obey James 1.5. Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally. He loves to give a lot of wisdom. Doesn't just kind of shell it out a little bit at a time. God is generous and gracious beyond compare. And when he sees a heart that's asking for wisdom to come down, he dumps it on us. It's liberally and without reproach. He doesn't come to us and go, well, you should have figured this out already or make us feel foolish for asking. In fact, the opposite is true. It's the wise man and the wise woman, the wise teenager, the wise child that's going to God for the wisdom because they realize they're insufficient in their own mind. And he greatly approves. It's a it's a teachable heart that's free from pride. Proverbs twelve fifteen says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. This is a person that thinks they have life figured out apart from God. But he who heeds counsel is wise. 
We often think of wise men and wise women as the ones you go to because they know everything and they have it all figured out. Actually, the Bible says the opposite is true. The wisest among us are those that realize they are insufficient and they pursue the Lord for the truth. He who heeds counsel is wise. Let's go to the fourth condition. It says apply your heart. Look with me at verse number two again. So that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. And this is such an interesting word. I found interesting anyway. Uh, The word apply here means literally, the literal word. It means to spread out or to stretch out. And as you think about this, to stretch the heart, to wrap it around, to apply it to understanding so that it conforms to the truth, the understanding of God's word. Romans 12 verse 2 says, do not be conformed to, the, to this world. Don't take and apply your heart to this world's wisdom and somehow stretch it out and wrap it around what this world thinks we should be living and what our culture demands that we live like. It says, do not be conformed, but be transformed, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Isn't that a a great way of saying the wisdom of God? That's what we're looking for. That's what we need. This is the person that realizes they stand empty-handed before the Lord in their own wisdom. Their current state needs to change. They know this. And they know that change, it's not easy, but it's necessary in order for them to grow and become wiser. You know, only God is immutable. Only God is unchangeable. And when we strive against change, we're saying to the Lord, I'm taking your place. I'm not going, I'm going to resist. I'm going to stubbornly refuse to do the things you're asking and to change the things in my thinking that you want me to change. We are not immutable. Christian life is change. It's constant change, actually. Or at least it should be. Constant growth and maturity what God wants. This is a condition of total dependency on God. It's a free admission of our own ineptitudes because we cannot be wise apart from God. The fifth condition, he says, cry out, and I put these together because they really are very parallel. Cry out and lift up your voice. Look at verse number three now. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. I find it so easy personally to just keep my needs to myself. And I think that's a common condition that we have as people because I don't want to really bother anyone. And sometimes I get the idea that I'm bothering God by bringing up things. Or again, my pride can step in because a person crying out, lifting up their voice is not a proud person. (laughs) It's pride that keeps us quiet and we keep our needs to ourselves. But here the wise person is the one who verbalizes their needs 
They cry out to God. They lift up their voice audibly. Turn with me to Psalm 39. We're going to read a few verses that emphasize this point. Psalm chapter 39. You'll have to turn with me. It's not on the screen. We're going to start in verse number 4. Psalm 39, starting in verse 4. I'm going to read down to verse 13. Watch this thought unfold as we move through the passage. Listen to this prayer. It's a prayer for wisdom from the psalmist, from David. Verse 4 of Psalm 39. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you, Lord, have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but a vapor. In the prime of life, David is saying, in the prime, at our highest pinnacle of human wisdom and strength and glory and riches, we're just a vapor that's here like the fog was the other morning, and as soon as that sun comes up, burned away. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Solomon would go on in Ecclesiastes to extend that thought quite and, and explore it quite deeply. Verse 7, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. God gets the glory. Verse 10, remove your plague from me. I'm consumed by the blow of your hand. When when with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is a vapor. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. You hear the cry of his heart, how he's lifting up his voice in utter dependence on God. Lord, despite all the human strength and wisdom and riches and glory that I have, I'm just a bit of breath in the scene of eternity. Are we as quick to cry out to the Lord when we need wisdom? Or have we discarded these instructions? So easy to do. There's so many distractions. But we have the truth here. So in order to find wisdom from God, we must come to the place where we can freely admit that we don't have wisdom on our own. We must admit our need. It's required.
Paul in Romans 8, verse 15, says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, we cry out, Abba, Father. When was the last time you cried out to God, begging for his wisdom and his guidance? The next two I've grouped together as they are again parallels. Seek and search. Seek and search. Look at verse number four. Proverbs 2 verse 4. If you seek her, speaking of wisdom, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. 174 years ago, our nation and really the world were swept with gold fever. I'm going to read to you a little bit about this. In 1848, John Sutter was having a water-powered sawmill built along the American River in Coloma, California, approximately 50 miles east of present-day Sacramento. On January 24th, his carpenter, James W. Marshall, found flakes of gold in a stream bed. Sutter and Marshall agreed to become partners and tried to keep their find a secret. Well, we know they didn't because news of the discovery soon spread and they were besieged by thousands of fortune seekers. Now, that was in January of 1848. By August of 1848, 40,000, I'm sorry, 4,000, 4,000 gold miners were in the area, and within a year of that time, about 80,000 49ers, as the fortune seekers of 1849 were called, had arrived at the California gold fields. By 1853, their numbers had grown to 250,000. Although it was estimated that some $2 billion in gold was extracted, few of the prospectors ever struck it rich. The work was hard, the prices were high, and the living conditions were primitive. Most of those that headed off for the gold fields of California, or many of them, I should say, left everything behind. They left their houses. They sold their businesses. They left their family members. Why? To seek and to search for hidden treasure. Many of them never even made it to California, I found out as I read about this. Many died en route falling to sickness and disease and other things. And most of those that made it there never became rich. It was a losing choice. You know, there were great risks in going to California. And there were people that came, not just from around this country, but from all over the world. This was a worldwide phenomenon. People came from Asia and Europe and other places on this planet to look for this, seek and search for this treasure, and most of them hardly found any. They risked their lives for it. They were willing to take those risks, but why? Because of the promise of hidden treasure. So now we come to the crescendo of this passage 
And, and if you've been watching, there is that gradual intensity from verse 1 to here. It started off just, just receiving with a purpose and treasuring and hiding and meditating on the commands. And then it grew to be attentive to, I want more. I found one can of coins. I want to dig another one up. They were attentive to wisdom. And then to apply our hearts to it, to stretch it out, to conform our hearts to all this treasure that we found in Scripture. And then I've found everything I think I can find. I'm crying out to the Lord. Please give me more. I'm crying out. I'm lifting up my voice. And now we get to the seeking and the searching. With each step, the intensity has grown. And the treasure hunt is on. And these verses seem to indicate that there are some truths and there is some wisdom that's going to take an effort to find, an effort to to be able to show what God is saying. There is some digging to do in God's word. There's some digging to do. God is saying to us, I've left you a gold mine of my word. I've left you the buried treasure in its pages for you to find. Are you willing to dig deeper? And we've been talking about gold mining this morning, but, you know, silver is also mined, much like gold. And uh, the Bible talks about this in Psalm 12, verse 6, because he compares it to the word of God, because silver is mined out, and then it's, after it's mined, it, it's melted in a crucible. And, it's, and all the dross, the impurities, begin to float to the surface, and they're taken off, and the silver is reheated, and it's done multiple times. In the ancient world, it was up to seven times to get very, 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 very close to 100% pure silver. Well, according to this verse, God's word is already pure. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. God's word is 100% pure spiritual silver. But do we see it this way? We have to understand that wisdom, it doesn't always come automatically. Sometimes God opens our eyes, reveals things to us. But many times, getting wisdom is a process. It takes a level of commitment to be willing to, to dig and to understand and to grow and to change. There's no shortcuts, really, to God's wisdom. It's just not made to be that way. It doesn't work that way. In fact, quick wisdom was part of the lie of Satan in the garden. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. Wisdom, instant wisdom. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate and we are still dealing with the repercussions of that choice to pursue instant quick wisdom. Wisdom comes to those who want it, but it must come from God alone. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And literally, it's keep asking. It's, it's a present tense. 
grammatically. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And you will eventually have the thing for which you seek. Now these are all the conditions that we must meet if we are to find wisdom from God. Are we willing to meet them? Maybe the consequences will give us some encouragement. Let's look at verses five and six. After he said all of that in verses one through four, now he comes to verse five with this great word, then. Then. I've given you all these conditions, but now rejoice in the consequences. Then, after doing all those things, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Notice that the very first thing we will find is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we are to be wise people, we must embrace the fear of the Lord. It has to be our starting point. To fear the Lord, it's the first step. It's crucial to finding the rest of the treasure. Without a healthy biblical fear of God, his wisdom becomes optional. If we don't come to God with a reverence and a worship and a sense of his complete otherness from us, yes, he is our friend that sticks closer than a brother. Yes, he is our loving heavenly father. And he never ceases to be those things for those that have placed their faith in Christ. But he is still holy, awesome. We sang that song at the beginning, Revelation song, taken right from the words of Scripture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. No one else can say that. That is exclusively for God alone. Do we see him like that? Do we have a solid understanding of the fear of the Lord? We sing about it. We talk about it. We read about it. We believe it on paper. But do we live it? Does God's holiness impact our lives? Or is it not a factor? Do we truly reverence God? Now that wisdom has been listened to, it's been applied, it's been sought after, it's been dug up, God's holiness is one of the first things that comes into clear focus. It's the, the fear of God, not in a sense of I'm afraid that he's going to hurt me, but I'm afraid of getting it wrong with him because he's just so majestic I want to give him his proper place above all else. As we begin to behold the awesome glory of God, we begin to see him for who he truly, truly is. Then the light of his wisdom begins to flood our hearts as if it's shining down from the throne room of heaven and it's giving us clarity and we're seeing things we have not seen before. The fear of the Lord. Do you fear the Lord in this way? Secondly, he says the knowledge of God. 
We're going to look at verse 5 again and 6. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and you will find the knowledge of God. It's the Lord that gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. It's God that provides the knowledge. It's God that gives the wisdom. It's the reward for the seeker and the searcher. It says from his mouth, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. The word of God is our source. As we begin to gain solid ground wisdom, we can look out at this world and we can see the craziness around us. We can see the nonsense that goes on. We can also go through trials and deep suffering with purpose because we're beginning to understand the wisdom of God. We're beginning to look at the world through the lens of Scripture. And using that wisdom for our life's decisions instead of the shifting sand that our culture demands that we live by. I want to go back to our couple again, and I mentioned this earlier, but think about it with me. What if that couple's walking their dog along, they find this can, they see what's inside. What if their response was to shrug and say, you know what? Those coins have been in the ground for a long time. They might as well just stay there. I mean, they're really old. They're outdated. They're not modern. And it's a lot of work digging. And we've got some appointments today, and I don't want to miss the game. And we don't just, we just don't have time. There's just so much to do. We're just so busy. Let's just leave those coins there and, and, Maybe when life slows down a little bit, we'll go back and and dig them up. Or we'll leave it for the professionals. Let them do it. None of us would, would do that. And certainly they didn't. But it's a reminder for us. How do you and I view the wisdom of God? Has it become a bore, an inconvenience, not on the list of priorities? Does it sit just on the outskirts of our minds? Or is it a treasure where when we focus on it, everything else stops mattering and only what God has given is in focus? Is it really our treasure? Is it something we can't wait to get our hands on? Would you be willing to reconsider the wealth of treasure you hold in your hands right now? Besides our life in Christ, the Bible is our greatest treasure. 
It really is. It is, a, it is our most valuable possession, and we must dig in if we are to gain the wisdom that God has for us. How do you see your Bible this morning? Where is it on your list of priorities? We've been talking a lot about biblical literacy, and Pastor Rich has been pushing that because statistically, Christians don't treasure this book. Statistically, I know many of you do. But where are we at? Are we part of that statistic? Or is it our truly our greatest treasure? As we close this morning, I want you to consider that actually the greatest treasure, the crown jewel of Scripture is the saving message that we call the gospel. It is the most valuable of the veins of gold that run through the pages of Scripture. You or have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one has community with the Father. No one has relationship with the Father but by me. If you were to die today, where would you go? That's the question. Where would you go? Today, you can know where you will spend eternity. In John 3.16, it says this, For God so loved in a perfect agape love the world, that's you, that's me, that he gave, he offered He provided his only begotten son. That's Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? Why did he send him down to die on the cross? That whoever believes in him should not perish, should not have to face eternal punishment in hell, but have everlasting life. Jesus died. He was buried to prove he was dead And three days later, he rose up from the dead to prove that he was God. And that is the hope. You say, why should I believe in Jesus? Because he rose from the dead. He's the only one to do that. And he did that so that we could believe in him. We're not believing in someone that's dead still. Our Savior lives Will you live with him? And those of us that have believed, let's close our eyes for just a moment of prayer as we close. Please close your eyes, bow your heads just for a moment. As we conclude uh, this morning, if you have come to a place in your life this morning where as a Christian, the word of God has become less of a priority, the wisdom of God has become something you're not pursuing I want to encourage you this morning. Turn to the Lord, repent of it, and choose to embrace his word, to seek and to search for the wisdom of God as hidden treasure. And if you're here this morning and you don't know where you'll go when you die, you can believe in Jesus right now. There's nothing more to do. There's no religious activity. There's no ceremony. 
There's not even really a prayer. It's simply placing your faith in Jesus, and I would encourage you to do that right now. Place your faith in Jesus. He's waiting for you. Believe in him today. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the great wealth of wisdom that we find. Please, Lord, find us pursuing it this week. Please help us to set it as our priority and be with those that are questioning their eternal security right now, their eternal home. Please help them to put their faith in you, Lord. We thank you for all you've done. 